When you watch the news on television, sometimes it is uh, frustrating or depressing, but uh, the news this morning brought tears to my eyes when I saw a story of a man, a truck driver in New Hampshire at a rest stop, uh, walking uh, back to his truck, and as he's walking around the truck, according to the surveillance video they had, he just fell over right on his back, unconscious. He was having a heart attack. He laid there for eight minutes. They didn't show the whole eight minutes on the surveillance video. That would have taken too long. But uh, as soon as someone noticed that he was there on the ground and passed out, uh, they called for help saying it, it looks like he may have had a heart attack. And inside the Dunkin' Donuts there was a young lady, an employee, who had taken a college class on CPR, and she dropped everything and ran out there. And watching her on the video was just like what you see on those dummies where they tell you to bounce hard. You know, you really got to get this heart uh, stimulated. And uh, she performed CPR on him until his heart came back, his breathing came back, uh, and he is alive. They interviewed her uh, this morning on the news, and they, they said, what was it like for you? And she said, well, if you take a class in CPR, you better be ready. And when someone needed it, I was there. I did what I was supposed to do. And they said, well, what happened afterwards? And she said, I cried for 10 minutes straight. And then I cried several times more throughout the day. And that, my friends, is a wonderful lesson for us, that if we love God, then we need to show that love by loving others. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. The story begins with a lawyer, a person who has studied the Old Testament law and has become an expert in the law, uh, who is seeking to make Jesus look bad by asking him a difficult question that is debated among lawyers and among the people and seeing if he can't get some in the crowd to disagree with Jesus' answer. Luke 10, verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's probably not so much thinking of what we would uh, call getting saved uh, or living a life uh, that's pleasing to the Lord or something such as that. He's more asking the concept of, I don't want to miss out on the resurrection at the end of the age. How can I be sure I'll be resurrected? Jesus realizes what is taking place here. He's trying to divide the crowd and trying to cause uh, people to say, well, I don't agree with what Jesus said. And so Jesus surprisingly turns the tables on him and says, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And you would think the lawyer... Uh, would say, no, I asked you first, but for some reason within him, uh, it struck a chord of, well, I know the answer to this, I've studied this. 
He's asking me. So now I get to say in front of the whole crowd what I know about this. And actually, uh, he gives a very good answer by combining together two texts, uh, one from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and one from Leviticus 19.8, and gives a great summary of what the Old Testament teaches us about relationship with God. The lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he says, in summary, you need to love God, you need to love others. Jesus then answers back, just like they were expecting a conversation to begin about how to interpret the law and how to know that you would have eternal life, how to be in that resurrection at the end of the age. And Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. And then, with a little twist, he says, do this and you will live. That, by the way, is also a quote from the Old Testament, because it's one thing to know the right answer, it's a whole nother thing to live out the right answer. And it causes us to say to ourselves, how many of us know we are to love our neighbors, but how many of us succeed in actually showing love to our neighbors? If we want to love our neighbors, it's because God has loved us. And we need to examine the command of how God has loved us and how we are to love him in return. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, as is quoted here in verse 27, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. By stating it in that manner, it must imply that the way in which we love God is only partial. That we love God with one aspect of our being, or with part of our life, or with limited time and scope and place. In the Old Testament, when it speaks of our heart, it is not speaking of the cardiovascular pump within our chest. It's speaking of the entirety of our being, who we are as a person. It's speaking of all of us. It includes your mind, your emotions, your will. It includes your personality. It's saying there's not one aspect of my being that is allowed to be held back if I love God with all of my heart. This is the week of Valentine's Day. Many people are thinking lovely thoughts, especially towards uh, the romantic person in your life in which you are talking about how you love them with your heart. Those could be feelings, uh, those could be emotions, those could be senses of attraction or senses of appreciation, but to love the Lord your God with all of your heart means there's not a part of me that I hold back. Every aspect of my being is tuned in 
to reflecting back to God the unbridled love that he has showered upon me. He says we love him with our entire soul. We are corporal beatings, meaning that we have physical bodies, but these bodies are wearing out and they will die. Our soul will continue to live forever. If we were to die now, our bodies would be placed in the grave, but our souls would go into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the resurrection, which is what the question is about, is when we will be reunited with our bodies and that we will become whole again with resurrected bodies, bodies that are incorruptible, will last forever and can have fellowship with God forever and ever. We are to love God with our souls, the eternal aspect of our being, the part of us that forever relates to God. We are to love God with our strength, meaning that we're actually to do things. I was impressed watching that young lady coming out of Dunkin' Donuts and pounding on this man's chest. I was thinking, she's breaking his sternum, I'm sure. But I imagine he was pleased to have his heart going again. If you think of what it takes to serve God, it takes strength, physical strength, emotional strength, mental strength, spiritual strength. We are to put effort into his command to love him and with all our mind. In the original text in the Old Testament, it doesn't mention the mind. Part of the problem is it's now coming into the New Testament and they're speaking uh, colloquially to each other in Aramaic, and this is being written down in Greek, and the all-encompassing Hebrew word leb for heart that includes the mind is not included in the Greek language. And so Jesus explains to us that this is part of how we love God. We also love him with our minds. And you would say, what does my mind have to do with it? Well, if you think of all that you do in your thinking processes, if you think even of how you study God's word, and how you learn his word with your mind and you memorize his word and you allow it to permeate into your soul, you realize there's no vast break between what it means to love God with my heart and my mind. I love him with both. I love him intelligently. I love him with understanding. Some people are afraid to study science for fear that it would lead them away from God. Actually, science should lead you toward God as you see the beauty and the intelligence in his creation and come to understand that only God himself is capable of creating what we see in our universe. We love him with every aspect of our being, our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind. And yet, the twist that Jesus places on this, as the lawyer answers correctly, is to say, 
Yeah, but you, do you do it? And that's an excellent question to ask ourselves as well. To what extent am I finding that I am maximizing every aspect of my being to love God with all I am and all I possess and in everything I can do? He doesn't want us to hold back. If we think romantically, like we perhaps have this week because of Valentine's, we often say, uh, well, I love you with all of my heart, but by that, do we mean every aspect of our being? Then how do we actually show it? How do we live out what that love is? If we're required to show God love in response to the love that he's shown us, how will we do that? And the lawyer, you can tell, is squirming a little bit, and so he seeks to vindicate himself. Verse 29 says, But wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? It's as if he's trying to distract the crowd from focusing so much on him. He's trying to soften the blow of whether he's actually doing this successfully. He wants to say the requirement isn't so easy. Perhaps he's implying minimum obedience is enough. What he should have said is, very honestly and authentically, well, how could I do this? I'm not able. I need help. And it's perfectly fine for us to realize that, to say to God, I want to reflect back to you the love you've shown me. I want to love you with every aspect of my being. I don't want any corner of my life left out. I need help. Would you help me? Would you help me surrender all I am and all I have and all I hope to be to you? So in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells one of our favorite parables, a story with a spiritual meaning. It teaches us that we should help others in need and that we should be able to see these people as we pass them by and that we can't walk by and say, well, I wish I knew CPR or I wish I could help in some way when we see a need, we need to act on it. Here's Jesus' story, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. I think it's very interesting that as the scripture describes going to and from Jerusalem, it's always going up to Jerusalem or down from Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem is the highest point. Jerusalem is way up high. To go all the way down to Jericho, which is much closer to the river, is a descent of 3,000 feet over 17 miles. It is a rugged road. It is a curvy road. It is strewn with rocks and caves. There are plenty of places for highwaymen to hide and to ambush people, and it was known as a dangerous road. So to begin the story with what may be perhaps a traveling merchant, he seems to pass by this area often, uh, traveling alone 
in a, a dangerous area, we're not at all surprised to hear that a group of robbers jumped him. And here is one of the saddest things. They take his clothes. They strip him. I once stayed in an apartment when we were selling books door to door when I was going through college. We were back east in Ohio. And we got robbed. Our little apartment that we shared was burglarized. And it was one thing to take our stuff. We didn't have much stuff. But when we opened the refrigerator, they had taken our food. And that's where it really, really hurt. Okay, so you take our stuff, but don't take our food. They not only robbed him, they took his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And as the story progresses, people pass by. This is a road where people travel often, and people start passing by. And the question is, you see a man dying in front of you. What would you do? Well, in the story of the Dunkin' Donuts and the, and the rest stop, what they did was, I don't know what to do. And so they send out an alarm. They start calling around. They, they say, anybody know what to do? And a young lady out of Dunkin' Donuts comes out, and you got the men standing around watching her as she's pounding on his chest. I'm going, there's the heroine. There's the one who says, I took a class. I'm going to put this to work. And by chance, in the story of Jesus, along comes a priest. Now, you would say, here is a person who should know God well, a person who should feel the love of God and should want to show the love of God. And as he's going down the road, he saw the man dying and passed by on the other side. I find it interesting that we often talk about what his reason may be. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't give a reason. Because really, we might try to say, well, what if I was really in a hurry or really busy or had things to do and I had places to go and I had jobs there? Jesus is just saying, you don't really have an excuse. Secondly, in verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, a Levite's an assistant to the priest. They're descendants of Levi, but not of Aaron. So they're related to the priests, but not completely. And they serve the priests. They also work in the temple. A Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And as the crowd is listening to Jesus tell the story, official Judaism has had two chances so far and has lost both opportunities to do the right thing. And the lawyer is one of these in official Judaism. And as the story is being told, Jesus is in a sense saying, and this is what people like you would do. You would make excuses as to why you wouldn't stop and why you wouldn't help. You have a man dying right in front of you, and you act like you can't see him. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, an unlikely hero, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, notice the first thing that happens. His heart opens. He feels something. He feels compassion. And that's what we need to ask ourselves. First of all, can I see with my eyes? Can I discern with my mind what is taking place here? And do I feel something? We're not allowed to let our hearts close against a person. Our hearts are to be open 
Our hearts are to be like God's heart. Our eyes are to be seen as God would see. And in some ways you'd say, I don't care about the race of the person laying on the ground. I don't care about his background. This person looks like he's dying. He needs my help. But it requires us to feel compassion. It's very interesting that Jesus switches races from the two Jews that passed by first to a Samaritan who passed by next. Samaritans were from a province north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. They were part of the land that was occupied by the Assyrians. Uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, was led into captivity into Babylon. At the same time, the Assyrian Empire entered into the northern kingdom and settled there. Because of that, those northern tribes began to intermarry with the Assyrians, and you end up with these Samaritans who were of mixed race, uh, who were of mixed religion. Uh, their religion was different. They held to the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, uh, but they didn't worship God at uh, Jerusalem. They worshiped him at Mount Gerizim. They were different enough that Samaritans were despised by Jews. But if you were a Jew and dying, would you care if it was a Samaritan who stopped to render aid? No, you're, you just want somebody who's willing to show compassion. And Jesus is helping them see that race, religion, creed, heredity should not make a difference to us. We are all created in God's image. And love for God should express itself in a life that is sensitive to other people's needs. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the answer is we will love our neighbor as ourselves. But the question to try to, to deflect the pressure that the lawyer was feeling was, well, how would I possibly know who my neighbor is? And you'll notice that Jesus is not speaking of your next door neighbor. He's not speaking of your neighborhood in which you live. He's saying your neighbor is the person right there in front of you who has a need. Whether you know him or not, whether he's from your country or not, whether he's from your background, your race, your religion, your creed, it's the person right there who has a need. He is your neighbor. That's the purpose of the story, to say to you, can you see him? And can you have compassion on him? There are six descriptions in verse 34 of how he cares for him. First, he came to him. He didn't try to get as far as he could on the other side of the road, but he actually came up to him. Secondly, he bandaged up his wounds. Thirdly, he poured oil and wine on them. When I was young, that just didn't seem like Bactine or, or disinfectant. I was, I was thinking like oil and wine? That sounds like salad dressing. <clears throat> no, 
The wine did have alcohol and was a disinfectant, and the oil actually is soothing on wounds. These are medicinal attempts to render aid to help him with the wounds that he has received. Then news that we hadn't heard before, he had a beast, perhaps a donkey or something, that he had been riding on. He's not going to ride any longer. He's going to walk the rest of the way, and he's going to put the injured man up on his own beast. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. He takes personal interest in this person, even though it's going to take time and effort and distract him from his work. He's not going to be as fast and as efficient in the work that he has to do. Let's say he's a traveling merchant. We don't actually know. But a person dying is worth the effort. On the next day, he takes out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Notice he's paying in advance. He says, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you, which causes me to think that he does travel this road uh, fairly often. Two denarii might not seem like a lot of money, but that would care for this man for more than three weeks in the care of this innkeeper. He did everything he could, and then he said, I don't care how much it costs. If you end up spending more money, I'll pay you when I come back. That would cause us to say, do we have limits on our time, on our money, on our efforts? And we'd say, like, well, I'll give a little bit, but I'm not going to give very much. I will help you a little bit, but I'm not going to help you very much. You ever needed someone to help you lift something heavy or you had to get it from one place to the other, and they'll say, I'll help, but then they give a limit. I'm going to carry it so far, or I'll give you 15 minutes, or, or some, some sort of limit as to amount of help they'll give you. We have to be careful about what we're conveying regarding the quantity of compassion and the love that we have for God that we're seeking to share with someone else. Jesus then asked the lawyer the question. And this is where it's fun. I've been a teacher my whole life, and it's interesting to ask students to respond to the lesson and see if they've been following you all along. It's not a tough question. He should get this right. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? What I'm finding here is he specifically is making a point that neighborliness is not based on who lives next door in your neighborhood. It's not found in any racial bond, nationality, color, gender, proximity. It's the person right there in front of you that needs help. The lawyer answers, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And I have to say, hey, he got an A. He has the right answers. The one who showed mercy. The one who had compassion. The one who gave a response is the one that loves. And that's why Jesus' question, do this and you'll live, 
is a good question. It's to ask us, what do we actually do? We may pride ourselves on saying how much we know, and often we will even test each other on how much we know. We'll memorize verses. We'll quote verses back to each other. We'll uh, hold contests on Bible trivia. Uh, we'll uh, ask each other to explain texts to each other. And we make it almost an intellectual game. But to hear that you're going out on a journey to the Navajo Nation uh, to serve the Lord there is a wonderful example of saying, I want to help people in need. Uh, we should do as Christians more and e even teach each other more about how to serve the people that are right there in front of us. The neighbor is the one we meet who is in need. The lawyer answered correctly, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go and do the same. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, do what I've asked you to do. He switches it from who to do. And that's the harder part. We should be asking ourselves, what am I doing? What have I done? What am I planning to do? It's very interesting. Uh, when we go to fill out an application for something, let's say an application for a job, an application for a promotion, an application for a scholarship, uh, certainly they're going to want to know uh, about uh, what you know and your experience and the like, but they'll often ask you, what kind of service activities have you been involved in? And that's where many people who've excelled academically or many people who have belonged to the right groups have done well. But when they actually say, what have you done to give back? Where have you served? That we find ourselves saying, ooh, wow, that's a harder one. And it's a good question to ask ourselves because we don't want to merely see people. We want to say, what have I done about what I have seen? We don't want to merely ask, who is my neighbor? We want to be a neighbor, to be a help to people. I fly, and, and when I travel, uh, often I like to kind of get myself into a cocoon of I'm focused, I'm traveling, I don't need to talk to anybody. Everyone around me is a stranger. Uh, the way we sit in planes these days uh, is you don't feel much like you're a stranger. You're usually rubbing up against the people next to you. Your shoulders, your arms are rubbing. You're sharing the same armrest, perhaps. You're bumping each other. If you need to get up and use the restroom, you have to ask the person next to you, would it be possible if I could get up and, and go to the restroom? So you're not really all that alone. And yet, in my travels, I like to remain quiet and focused and all by myself. But God places in my way people that want to talk to me. 
people to want to strike up a conversation. And rather than being irritated about this, what I have learned to begin to do, and I'm still in the progress of learning this, is this must be one of these divine appointments in which God wants me to have a conversation with the person. And whereas at first I think like, you don't know me, why are you talking to me? <laughs> I, I now welcome it most of the time because I'm learning and the person actually wants to have a real-life conversation with a person who's trapped next to them for several more hours. And the conversations actually, now that I've been through them, are not painful, and they are helpful, and they are encouraging. One time I was sitting next to a lady who was doing the same thing I was doing. We were traveling to speak somewhere, teaching the scripture. Wow, we had a wonderful conversation about knowing the Lord and about serving the Lord and about the various people that we knew in common. It turned out to be not a laborious conversation, a very interesting conversation. One particular time, I was not completely prepared for the lecture I was going to give that Saturday evening, and so I was still studying. I had a book out, I had my notes out, I was writing notes, and the person next to me was so curious about what I was doing, you could tell he was reading over my shoulder. And eventually he interrupted me and noticed that I was giving a lecture on heaven that night, and he wanted to know about heaven. And so he started asking me questions, and I was thinking, like, I'm still preparing. I really don't have time for this. Why does he want to know about heaven? All right, we'll talk. We talked for two hours the rest of the flight all about heaven, and he prepared me better for what I was going to say that night than any of this looking over my notes and recopying and taking notes down. Our conversation was the best preparation I could have. He loved what I had to say. He was so curious with all kinds of details, which was great preparation from the questions from the audience. Uh, he came up with amazing questions. He was so excited about this, he says, when we landed, he says, I'd like to continue this conversation. I'm going to give you my contact information. And I said, okay, I'll give you my contact information. So I gave him mine, and he says, I'm going to send you some of my rap songs. And I said, great. <laughs> but what's interesting is, if we will be a neighbor, God can open us up to have the opportunity to actually interact with people and help them in their journey as they're helping us in our journey. I was once on a bus ride, this was a long time ago, and there was this guy reading his Bible, and he was, this is a journey all the way from Los Angeles to New York. It took three days and three nights in the belly of a greyhound. <clears throat> We were together on the road for probably 24 hours. I saw him reading his Bible constantly. I got a little guilt feeling going, and so I eventually pulled my Bible out and started reading. So once he saw my Bible come out, he thought I was fair game. He moved from his row up to where I was, and he was reading through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not an easy book to read through, but he had become so excited about Jeremiah. For miles and miles, he explained the book to me. He was telling me all the joy and all the excitement of what he was learning about God's plans in the book of Jeremiah. And I was thinking like, why? And yet I was realizing because he is overflowing with joy of what the scripture is saying to each other. Isn't that amazing? 
We should be much more open to hearing people, listening to people, interacting with people, helping people, taking time with people. As a prof in my office, I would be studying, and students want to come by and just talk. And they'd plop themselves in a chair, and they'd start talking to me, and, and, and again, I was thinking I was studying, but now I'm talking. And I remembered back about my favorite profs and how I would go plop myself in the chair in their offices when they were studying and take a full hour of their time and just talk about theological things we were interested in. And it reproved me to think, I used to do that to my profs. Why am I wondering why someone would want to talk to me and take my time? And if you think about it, the whole reason we are there is to receive from that person the benefit. You've been to physicians for your physical health, in which sometimes you'll say, I don't think he spent enough time with me. I don't think he heard me. I don't think he seemed to even care enough. But you've also been to physicians where you said he took his time. He was very interested. He asked lots of questions. He ran tests. He gave me explanations I could actually understand. And you'd say, there's a difference between this doctor and this doctor. I appreciate the doctor that didn't seem hurried and seemed genuinely interested in my case. In the same way, we should say to ourselves, which kind of doctor do I want to be? The doctor that's in a hurry, the doctor who doesn't seem to have care or time, or the doctor who really wants to know me and appreciates me. Carol and I often talk about each other's doctors, and we talk about what the doctors are doing in our lives. The doctor I have now, and Carol likes to find doctors for me because she likes to make sure the doctors know everything about me. I said, Carol, you'd love this doctor. He finds stuff that I don't even remember I'm supposed to do. And he assigns tests for me that I'd say, like, yep, caught me again. I need that test, too. Oh, that injection. All right. Yeah, okay. We could get that injection, too. That vaccination. I'll give you that one, too. He actually proactively is thinking how to help me. Now imagine people in your life who need help. And imagine if you, in your times of just thinking, not looking at our phones, but just thinking, saying to ourselves, how could I minister to this person? How could I be a benefit and a help to this person? And the next time we're together, we actually minister to that person in the way in which that person would benefit the greatest. We're actually proactively like a physician who actually studies our charts and thinks of tests we ought to run and vaccinations and injections we ought to get, that we would say, I think I have something for you. I think I can help you in this. Here's a book that would be good for you, or here's a conversation that we could have. I could be of help to you. What else could I do to minister to you? One of the reproofs, I think, as I read through this, is that we tend to like to work with the people that are most like us, the people we like. And yet in this story, it's all people, not certain ones, with the bridge between the Samaritan and what was likely a Jew that's been injured. It's not our race, not our religion. Our mercy, our love that we've learned from God is to extend to all without distinctions. And it teaches us that God wants us to have compassion. 
And without the love that we show to others, our evangelism will be dry. We have to relate to people as people and not numbers. People who need to know the truth and the love that God has for them. And we do that by serving them right where they are regarding their felt needs and showing them the love that the Lord God has placed in our hearts. Think back again. What's in the law? How does it read to you? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. And the way in which you show that is by loving your neighbor as yourself. That the love of God that has been poured into our hearts pours through us and ministers to other people. And we become the lesson from God to them of what God's love is like. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you then and say, teach us your will, O Lord. Show us what you would have us to do. So often we think of love merely as a feeling. If we don't have the feeling, then we don't want to be loving. And yet, Father, we ask that as the Samaritan saw and felt compassion, that we would see with your eyes, see people the way you see them, and have compassion on them the way you have compassion. And because we are your hands and your feet, your mouth, your eyes, as members of the body of Christ, we ask that you would help us to love others, that you would love others through us and allow us to minister to people. Father, help us not to think of how busy we are. Help us not to think of the other tasks that we have. Help us instead to think of where we are in this very moment and who needs us, who would benefit from the love that you've shown us that we could show to them. Oh, Father, may our hearts be wide open in our love, and may we show it through our actions. Father, if we love you, may we also love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.